This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection chapter. It's a long chapter. I'm not going to go through every point by point, which is unusual. But what I want to do is for us to stimulate interest and understanding why we believe what we believe. Why is it so important to believe of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because there's some Christian denominations who say it's not really important. It's non-negotiable or it's negotiable. And we say it's non-negotiable. Now, we know that the first Corinthian letter was written in AD 56 by the Apostle Paul. This is after the resurrection, after Jesus' 40-day earthly post-resurrection ministry, after the ascension, after Pentecost, after the giving of the Holy Spirit, all these miracles that were happening in the early church. So a lot of things had passed, and this church started to go apostate. They started to fall into heretical teaching. So... The Apostle Paul does a few things. Number one, he rebukes the Christians who claim to be Christian and say, well, you know, it's not important, the resurrection, or we don't believe in the resurrection. But what he also tries to do is he tries to strengthen the believers who are new believers or weak believers and help them to understand why it's so important to believe in the resurrection and to shore them up in that. So that's what's going on. We're going to look at nine truths that are established in the resurrection and Again, as uncharacteristic on a Sunday morning, what I really want to do is stimulate questions. I want to answer questions, but I want to stimulate questions. In other words, I want to stir up a hunger for people that maybe have not read it, have not understood it, don't understand why the resurrection is important. After we go through this, to just start to have some questions. Certainly ask me, ask the other pastors, send us an email. Um, So that's what we're looking to do. Now, there are 58 verses in this chapter. And 58 verses, a lot of verses, a lot of information there, okay? And I believe that the Apostle Paul puts this at the end, just before the conclusion of this letter, this long letter, so that it would be one of the last things on the minds of the Corinthian believers. Just as a show of hands, and I'm just curious, because a lot of people haven't read 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, just If you haven't read 1 Corinthians 15, or you don't remember a good part of it, would you do me a favor and please raise your hand? Excellent. So you're going to be in for a treat this morning. We're a teaching church. We love to learn about God. We love to learn about Jesus. Even the little kids love to learn about Jesus. It reminds me of little Johnny on Palm Sunday who was very sick. He was so sick that he needed a sitter. And mom and dad came to church and had to leave him home. And mom and dad come home and they're holding these palm branches. And little Johnny's like, he's amazed. What is that? What is that, dad? And dad said, well, when Jesus walked by, the people held it over his head or put it at his feet. And little Johnny fumed. He said, it figures. The one day I don't go to church and he shows up. (laughs) So let's jump in. Verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. So what we learn here is, and this might be refreshing to many of you, number one, We're not saved by denomination or church attendance or good deeds or even religion itself. But 
belief in the gospel of which the resurrection is a part of. And the gospel, euangelion in the Greek, just means good message. Well, we're going to learn how good this message is. So the first thing the Apostle Paul does is he establishes this first truth of salvation based in the resurrection. So two prongs have to be met. Number one, to be saved. We repent and believe that Jesus died for our sins. He died a substitutionary death on the cross. And the second prong is that we continue in it, that we remain in it. This isn't a novelty or a fad. Otherwise, our faith is useless. Even coming to church is useless. So this is the progression, action verbs, to receive the gospel, to stand firm on it, to hold fast to it, otherwise we have a useless faith. Now some may say, well, Pastor Joe, what about the miracles? What about the teachings, the sinless life? These are all very important. However, without the crucifixion and the resurrection, the former couldn't save us. Otherwise, we'd be dead in our sins with no help and no hope to escape the coming judgment for our sins. And I'm amazed at how many, again, call themselves Christians and compromise on these issues. There's no compromising on these issues. Galatians 1, 8, and 9, the Apostle Paul says, if anyone preaches something other than that you heard, the biblical Jesus, the gospel, all right, then let him be accursed. Very strong words from the Apostle Paul. In verses 3 and 4, we see the second truth that he lays out. The Apostle Paul is making an argument. And what does he do? He calls in his first witness. I now call, if it was a courtroom, I call the Old Testament as a witness to back up what I'm saying here. The Old Testament, remember he speaks about the Scriptures. The, Old, the New Testament wasn't codified yet. Much of the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. So he's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. So what do we have? We have Isaiah 53, the suffering Messiah. We have Psalm 22, the psalm of the crucifixion. We have Genesis and Jonah, which show multiple types of the resurrection. And Psalm 110, where Jesus would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Psalm 16, that the Messiah, he would not see corruption. Right? Jesus died and was buried and rose again bodily, bodily, and so on. We've covered many hundreds of these over the years in this church as we have gone through the scripture. Verse 5. And that he was seen by Cephas, or Peter, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom life, or excuse me, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now when we see that, that's euphemistic. That's a nice way of saying that they died, they passed on. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. It wasn't useless. It wasn't futile. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed." He labored more abundantly. His life was changed. He consented to the murder of Christians. And God stopped him on the road to Damascus and appeared to him. And from that point, Jesus appeared to him. His life completely changed. So he devoted his whole life to the cause of the gospel and to see people saved. And he even says, he catches himself, he says, I labored more than all these other, these other apostles. However, 
It wasn't me, but it was the grace of God within me. We don't do it in our own strength. Otherwise, we get burnt out. So we see what's going on here. So what he does here is he brings a second witness, the collaboration of over 500 witnesses who had seen the risen Christ. Don't believe that? Well, how else do you explain the fact that when the Romans started persecuting the Christians, lighting them alive, binding them and covering them with tar and, and lighting them on fire. You can hear the screams of them and Nero's persecution, sending them into the Colosseums. We see, we see the artifacts of them. We see the, um, you know, in the museums and such, and some of them still exist. It's a fact that this is what they did for sport. And the Roman uh, government completely turned against the Christians. So how do you explain that this small band of believers starts multiplying exponentially in the face of this horrible persecution, children sent to be torn in pieces, and they still, start, they still multiply. The fact is, they had seen the risen Christ. Christ was doing a great work through the work of his Holy Spirit as well. And you can read these chronicles in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Understanding this, that the only way, if you had the choice to deny Jesus, hey, if you don't know who Jesus is, <laughs> deny Jesus or we put you to death. Oh, good, deny Jesus. Until... It's been proven to you until you've seen the resurrected Christ, until he's changed your life, and then you realize, wow, he wasn't just some historical figure. Now, otherwise, it's considered as a psychological term, it's called suicidal tendencies. Nobody wants to die. Who wants to die? Nobody. The only reason these people, with, given that choice, would face death is because they knew that Christ was resurrected, and they knew there was a resurrection awaiting them as well. So the Apostle Paul, he puts himself last, but he was a success story. He persecuted the church. He consented to murder. So did Moses. Moses killed a man, and God used them. He changed their lives. So my question to you this morning, what have you done that's so bad that God can't use you? The answer is nothing. And if you think you can't be used, if you think you're unqualified, then you're qualified. That's the paradox of how God uses people. Once we empty ourselves of our pride and our self-determination, God can use us. He fills us. He fills those empty vessels. So the Apostle Paul should give us all hope. He wrote half the New Testament, and he consented to the murder of Christians prior to his conversion. He gave up a lucrative career. He was well-educated to become a nomad, a wanderer, going from place to place, starting churches, preaching the gospel of salvation, giving up his life because he knew that this world wasn't the final place. Now here's a concept as well that many of you have experienced and I've experienced is when we talk about heaven, sometimes people think, gee, well, one day I'm going to die. I'm going to live, you know, do whatever I want, live to my 80s, 90s, 100s and beyond, take good care of myself. One day I die and I hope that I get to heaven. That's not the Christian attitude because when we understand the resurrection, there's also a resurrection of our current life. We change. Wherever we're going in life, God will change our paths. He'll, he'll ask if, he, if we would like to work with him in his fields, bringing others to salvation. So there's a resurrection of our current life as well, figuratively. Our lives should change. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also vain. 
Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ have perished. Now this seems to be you know, a redundancy. Those who have died have perished in death? No, the word is destroyed. It's a different Greek word. It means that they face their sins Okay, when they die. They, they stand before God and they're judged eternally. So that's a very strong word. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are the most, of all men, the most pitiable. I love this logical progression that the Apostle Paul makes. And what he does here in this section, the fourth truth is the importance of the resurrection and the ramifications if the resurrection is not true. Now, some in the church were saying that there was no resurrection. Well, we hear that today, don't we? Uh, there's one particular church not far from here that there's a sign out that says, we're, you know, we're open to everyone's beliefs. Well, what if your beliefs clash? Well, what if one person believes in the resurrection and one person doesn't? Leadership doesn't take a stand. You could just come in and believe what you want to believe. You could be monotheistic and be sitting next to a polytheist, right? And that's the way they run that place. And they call it Christian. According to the Apostle Paul, that's not true. Now, some would say, Pastor Joe, you're intolerant. First of all, I didn't write this. <laughs> Second of all, I agree with what has been written. Okay, so let's get that clear. And imagine the hubris of us Western Christians after 2,000 years to start changing what God has established. Unfortunately, it started in Corinth, and the Apostle Paul had to correct it. So here's the progression. Listen, if Christ isn't risen, our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And if that's the case today, then we might as well just leave now with our, our turkeys and hams in the oven uh, set to a timer, might as well just go home and hang out and watch it cook because we're also wasting our time here if there is no resurrection. Jesus said many times, and he didn't have to do this, but he did. If you look through the Gospels, how many times did Jesus say, I will rise again? If he didn't think he could do it, or you know, he might as well just not said anything, but he did. What are the implications if he didn't rise? A, he lied. B, he was incompetent. Or C, he was crazy. Now, God is the pro progenitor of truth. And if he claimed to be the son of God and equal with God, then certainly everything he said, we would have to hold him to. God is the progenitor of truth. Right? If there is no resurrection, then we're worshiping this morning a dead savior. And a dead Savior is no Savior at all. And if that's the case, we have no hope. Our loved ones have no hope. Let me just let you know this as well. Whether it's Judaism or Christianity, there's a, a, a scam that's been perpetrated within it that says when you die, God looks at your good works versus your bad works. And if you have more good works, you know, it's that tipping point, you get 51%, you're in good shape. That's a lie. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our righteousness cannot save us. So where's the hope? Where's the hope for our loved ones who have passed on before us and the truth was preached to them? I would tell you this, that apostles, preachers, pastors are the most pathetic, deceptive fools on the face of the earth 
if there is no resurrection. And I got to tell you this, being a pastor, it's not just preaching on a Sunday morning. There's a lot to it. And if there was no resurrection, I would find an easier job, like being a police officer or something. <laughs> 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after those, afterward those who are Christ at his coming or the rapture. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So the fifth thing we look at here, the fifth truth, now it starts to get intricate. As we start moving up in truths, the building blocks become more intricate. Okay, it doesn't just become a simple concept that we can understand. Now we're talking about chronology or time order. He starts to talk about how the resurrection actually starts to happen in details. This isn't some hastily put together doctrine. See, when you lie about something, a good liar knows that they never give too many details because you can start finding the inconsistency in the lie and exposing the liar. Here, the Apostle Paul, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, gives incredible details, intricate details about the resurrection. So we're looking at time order right now. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrected dead. Now, there's a parallel there. If you know anything about the Jewish har harvest and the festivals, uh, you know, Jesus is making an analogy here with the harvest of souls that he often spoke about in the gospel. So in other words, check this out. Jesus led as the first fruits. Let me just talk about the harvest festival first. What the Jews would do is they would you know, plant their crop and as it would come to maturity, the best and most beautiful, they would take the first fruits and wave them and offer them to God. So that was the first fruits. And then what they would do is they would harvest, they would cut down the main crop, and that was the largest one. And then at the end, they would leave a certain percentage for the poor. It was an awesome social program. And it wasn't bad stuff, it was good stuff. But they would leave a percentage so all those who were struggling financially could come and take it for free. It was really neat. Here's the, here's the first resurrection. Check this out. The first resurrection was when Jesus was the first fruits. And if you look in Matthew 27, it also says that some of the saints were resurrected and appeared to many in town. So that's the first fruits. Of course, Jesus led the way. The second is the rapture. Sometime in our future, before the judgments of Revelation, the Lord will take his people and, and bring them home with him. Okay? And then the last part of that is the tribulation saints. So if you really study eschatology, you know what I'm talking about, end times prophecy. Now check this out. There's a second resurrection. That's the resurrection of the wicked dead. Those are the resurrection of the rebellious. There will come a point in time, at the end of time, where they will be resurrected. The sea will give up the dead. The graves will give up the dead. They will stand before God in the great white throne judgment, and then they will be cast into eternal punishment uh, because they... they they did not accept God's way of salvation. Some will say, gee, I went to church all my life. I never heard this. You know, when we take communion, and we're going to today, there's a huge part of communion that a lot of churches missed. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he spoke about him coming again in the kingdom. 
Okay? So what do we have here? We have Adam brought death into the world through rebellion and sin, and Jesus brought life with dying for our sins and the resurrection. 24. I read this again. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Sounds a little confusing, but basically there's an order here. God is the God of order and not of confusion. I like that because I'm, I'm kind of orderly myself and I don't want to go to heaven and everything's haphazard. You know, where's the receiving line? Where's the, you know, where's the river of, I don't know, we didn't turn on the faucet yet. No, I don't want that. God has everything under control. The streets of gold, the, the fruits, the, the trees that bear fruits of eternal life, and it's all there. It's all presented. It's all prepared for us. I love that about him. So the sixth, the sixth point or the sixth truth in the resurrection is that death must finally be dealt with. The question is, what does death have to do with the resurrection? The answer is everything. Death is what humankind brought into the world. Life is what God brought back to counter it. Resurrection is the antidote. You know, when, if you're in some of these remote places and your child gets bit by a venomous snake, you've got to find the antidote. Otherwise, the child's going to die. Well, God knew that because of our sin, it separated us from him. We're his children. And he had to find the antidote. Otherwise, we would perish for eternity because he's a God of justice. So the antidote, of course, was the, uh, the substitutionary death that Jesus performed on the cross. But also, the resurrection is part and parcel to that. So we get that antidote and we live. We don't die from that venomous poison of death and, and sin. Verse 29. Otherwise... What will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy or danger every hour? It was very dangerous what the Apostle Paul did. He was arrested, he was shipwrecked, he was beaten by the authorities, he was imprisoned, and he just, every time he got out, every time he healed from his wounds, he went back to preaching the gospel. I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. When we follow Jesus, we, we pick up our cross and we follow him. We crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, and we follow him. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. So seven out of nine. The moral implications of the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, then I live one way. If the resurrection is not true, then I live another way. And if that's the case, let's just turn the church into a social club. There's really no meaning behind the preaching. There's no meaning behind words. Let's put a disco ball and spin it around and dance and drink and have a good time, right? Let's feed our flesh. 
if the resurrection isn't true. And truthfully, how we spend our time, our money, what makes us happy is a reflection of how much we really believe in the resurrection or not. It says a lot about us. See, when we really believe, we want to dedicate ourselves to the Lord. It doesn't mean we all become pastors or missionaries, but it means that we, we sacrifice, we commit ourselves. Because when you work for the Lord, when you're in his harvest, remember, it's not just crops, it's not just stocks, it's not just inanimate things, it's a soul harvest. It's a harvest of people's souls, eternal souls, that God is committing to us. And that is never a waste of time, no matter how much we, effort we put into it. If we believe the dead don't rise, we live for this short life, this temporal life. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the resurrection isn't true, and evolution is true, and really our, our love for each other and our emotions are just some chemicals that smack into each other in our brains and we just die and we fall back into the earth and um, we, we, you know, we fertilize the crops and it's just this big ecosystem that we're a part of, then we should live to just gratify our flesh. I would, I would be the first one to say that. Hurry up, accumulate stuff. Hurry up, accumulate degrees. Hurry up, accumulate good memories because we're going to die at some point. He who dies with the most toys wins. Have you ever heard that? Why should anyone have any motivation for doing anything right? What is right and wrong? It's all relevant. It's dualistic. It's pluralistic. Then I would agree with all of them if the dead do not rise. I'll go even further than Paul said. This is just, like I said, a big waste of time. Verse 33, he says, don't be deceived. He wants to bring them back to reality, a reality check. The Living Bible says this, it's a different translation. He says, if you listen to them, these people who are lying to you and deceiving you, you will start acting like them. Get some sense and quit your sinful lifestyles. I say this to your shame. Some of you are not even Christians and have never really known God. How would you like him to come speak one Sunday morning? <laughs> people romanticize the Apostle Paul until they start reading his letters. He was fiery. Why was he fiery? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. Verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. This must have been a question because I don't think the Apostle Paul under the Holy Spirit was being snarky just for the sake of being snarky. He says, foolish ones. This was going around in this church, this heretical teaching. Well, probably in a sarcastic tone. Well, how were the dead raised up? And with what body did they come? Doesn't make any sense, Paul. He says, what you sow, you do not sow that body that will be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Check this out. This is what Paul's saying. Folks, you don't believe in the resurrection. You, you can't conceptualize how God can bring somebody from the dead to life again. First of all, he's God. He can do anything. He made the body. Second of all, Corinthians, go out into the garden, take a walk outside the church walls, and look, in, look around. Look at the crops. What happens? The seed is, you can take it, it's dead. It doesn't do anything. It stays in the same state for a long time. But the seed, when it comes off the, the part of the plant, and it falls to the ground, and it dies, it starts to germinate. 
there's moisture, there's soil, there's nutrients, and all of a sudden, this seed comes to life. Now, when a seed goes into the ground, does it produce a whole bunch of baby seeds? No, it doesn't. It produces a different body. There's a shoot, there's roots, and there's different, it doesn't look like the seed that fell into the ground. So Paul's saying, common sense, just in nature, you can see the resurrection of God because he shows it to you in nature. I love that about him. We can look outside. The Bible says in Romans that by the creation, we can see that God is real. We don't need some scientist to dissect it and tell us. He shows it even to the simplest among us and the most uneducated because he came for everybody. Very impressive. <laughs> uh, so he says, he says, verse 39, All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial or heavenly bodies and terrestrial of the earth, earthly bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is a glory of the sun, another of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Uh, yeah, I think um, he, he, probably without the telescope yet, uh, they couldn't see the difference between a white dwarf and a, what was it, they call a red giant, and the different stages of a star. Yes, they do differ in glory based on their brightness. For also the resurrection of the dead, the body is sown in corruption, is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Take a course in simple anatomy and physiology. I love the human body. You see the, 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 na the main nerve roots and the bifurcation of the nerves and the, the blood vessels from larger to smaller to the capillaries. If you study all the systems of the body, there is a glory of the human body. As you're sitting here, you're listening to the sound waves and they're going into your ear and they're going through the auditory nerve into the brain and it's taking the, the signals and the highs and lows that I'm doing and it's interpreting it into intelligible, hopefully, uh, <laughs> translations that you can say, gee, I know that word, I know that word, and at the speed of one of the super fastest computers, your brain is taking what I'm saying, your, there's images in your mind. Think about it. Anatomy and physiology, the human body is an amazing machine, but it has its limitations. God tells us about a, a spiritual body that we will have not going to turn into angels and fly around. We won't need to. We'll be able to move through dimensions. We'll, we won't be confined to one atmosphere of pressure or the certain percentage of nitrogen and oxygen in the air that we have to breathe to sustain us. We can go wherever we want into different dimensions. That's the celestial body. That's the body that doesn't die. So there's a glory of the, the human body, but when that dies, if you're a believer in the Lord, he's going to give you a new, awesome, spiritual body, limitless, no depression, no getting tired, no being hungry, for eternity. The vampire movies, you know, are so attractive to the youth of today. Why? Think about it. Because you get to live forever. Beautiful. No wrinkles, no change of the body from gravity. Uh, you know, you see these shows and they live forever, beautiful. Well, that is available, but not with the long teeth and sucking people's blood, okay? That's available to you through Jesus Christ, so understand that. And, and very different. <laughs> and it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spirit is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual chronology here. 
The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. As the expression goes, you can't take it with you. You can't take your degrees with you. You can't take your gold with you. You can't take your wealth with you. Flesh and blood, our bodies as they are, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. We are in a fallen state. That's why we must be changed. How many of you have never heard some of this stuff before? It's pretty cool, isn't it? So the eighth point is we see the intricate details of the manifestations and the substance of the bodies of the resurrected dead. God is a God of order. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We not, shall not all die. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruption, this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The ninth and final point is the changing of the resurrected body from from corruptible to incorruptible. We will all change into something else. The things you don't like about yourself, your body, don't worry about it. (laughs) What you get for eternity, you're really going to like. It's going to be a nice package. But what happens is you go from corruptible to incorruptible. The Bible says you change from one thing, what we are now, to something else completely, alos in the Greek, something completely different. And it kind of reminds me, it's just the way my mind works, it's unusual. I thought of the frog and the prince. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's a frog, an ugly little slimy frog, and gets kissed by the princess and becomes a beautiful, handsome prince. So in a sense, we're all frogs. And frogs are cool. If you studied frogs in biology class, there's a lot of neat things about the frog. However, we're not going to stay frogs for eternity. We're going to be turned into beautiful princes and princesses for all of eternity. So that's good news. And according to 1 Corinthians, excuse me, I just want to touch on this because this is important. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which I won't go for the, there for the sake of time, but it's really the, the portion about the rapture, about the Lord coming for his people. You know, the last trumpet, the Lord with the voice of an archangel, right, with a shout. He's going to raise the dead. The dead are going to be raised first. So they're going to be from corruptible to incorruptible. And he says, but we who are alive and remain will also be caught up in the air with them. So what's really neat is there will be a generation. He says, we won't all sleep. Could be our generation, could be, listen, we don't set dates. That's, that's blasphemous in the scripture. But some successive generation will see the Lord's return. And those who are alive will never get the, I don't say benefit, uh, of, of tasting death. They'll never have experienced it because when the rapture comes, the dead will be raised 
And the ones who are alive in a twinkling of an eye, that fast, split second, will be raised too in glory. And as we're being raised, um, I guess, upwards, our bodies will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Pretty neat. A fraction of a second. We'll be a part of that main harvest. Verse 55. Oh, death, where is your sting? Sort of in a mocking tone. Death, where is your sting? Everybody here fears death. You know, I've done so many funerals. I don't like doing funerals. Uh, but I do it because I have compassion for those loved ones who are, are struggling, and it's part of my profession. But it's, it's a horrible thing. You know, it's not fun. People are depressed. They're, they have anxiety. Some need tranquilizers and sleeping pills for a while. It's just, they lose a loved one, and they're just completely at a loss. Death has a sting right now. It hurts. But death, at some point, will not have a sting. Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? The holding place for those who go, who have gone to be with the Lord. And when the Lord raised from the dead, he called them out of Hades and they, they rose and they got to finally be in the presence of God. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. We look at God's law, there's so many of them. We don't have to go very far to see that we've broken multiple ones every day. And that's the strength of sin because it shows us that we're sinners. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The Apostle Paul makes the case that death is completely defeated in Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting because just like when I do a sermon on love, you know, I could say I love chocolate and I love my wife, but there's, it's vastly different. And death is the same way. In the Greek word, we see the word death or mortality. Or I'm sorry, in English, we see the word death, mortality. But in the Greek, there's several different words for it. And there's four, at least four words used here in the Greek, but we don't see it unless we're Greek students. There's phnetos, which is more mortality. There's necros. This is important, the last two. Necros is where we get the term in medicine, necrotic tissue. That means the tissue has died. It can't come back. Necros is a corpse. It's not pretty. Life has gone out of it. Blood is not flowing. Bacteria take over. Gases build up. You know, and if you've lived long enough, you've seen a lot of that. Necros is, is loathsome to look at. It's not the person that you knew. There's another word which is used here. It's called thanatos. In the English, we get the word euthanasia from, a good death. So sort of a, a misnomer. I don't know how good death can be. But thanatos is the concept of, it would be great for the atheist if they were just the necros. If the body died and their consciousness ceased to exist and that's it. The problem is, don't, don't take that to the bank. Because there's a thanatos. Thanatos is the concept of eternal death. That's when you move from the living into the, into the realm of the underworld. However, Jesus came to destroy Thanatos. Thanatos is to be feared because without the blood of Jesus, you will stand and pay for your sins. You move into the, into the concept of Thanatos, but Jesus came to destroy Thanatos. So there's no sting to it anymore. We pass under the blood and judgment passes over us. As a matter of fact, in Revelation, it says that in the end, death 
will, thanatos will be thrown into the lake of fire. It won't have an effect anymore on us. Death has robbed us for so long, robbed us of our loved ones. But Jesus, as the first fruits of the resurrection, has come to reverse that. And we really appreciate salvation more when we understand what we're, what we're missing out on, the bad stuff that we're missing out on. Let me just read 57 and 58 one more, and then we'll, we'll close it up. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, something happens for its, first. We have victory in Jesus Christ. So there's a corollary to that. We have victory, and then we're to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. What does this have to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Absolutely everything. Everything we do on this earth has eternal ramifications. The Apostle Paul, this might be a shocker for some, is no better of a person than anybody sitting here. As a matter of fact, in a lot of ways, before he was converted, he was worse than everyone sitting here. I don't know if I got any murderers in here today. But his life completely changed when faced with Jesus Christ. And he went the distance for Jesus Christ. And if we really believe in the resurrection, we should go the distance for him as well. Our lives should change. Our current lives should be resurrected. The resurrection is not just history, although it is history. Resurrection is not just a great doctrine to be learned, although it is a great doctrine to be learned. The resurrection is not just a free ticket to heaven, although it is a free ticket to heaven. The resurrection applies to you and me here and now this morning in 2013 in New Jersey, in Jamesburg, not just once a year, not just twice a year. The resurrection applies to our present lifestyle and our present character, not just a future occurrence for the assuaging of our eternal souls. God wants us to be involved in the work that he's doing on the earth. So I ask you before you leave here, are you finally ready to live the resurrected life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the intricacies here, Lord. Um, it, it's, it takes a long time to digest. It really takes meditation. It takes looking at other scriptures. It takes, you know, your Holy Spirit to teach us, as the Bible says. I just pray right now, if there's anybody here this morning who has never given their life over to Jesus Christ. You know what? It is, it is a free ticket to heaven, but it's more than that. It's a relationship with God. So before we partake of communion, is there anybody this morning?